today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Former Stanley Cup winning NHL goalie uh, Ray Emery, an accidental drowning has uh, taken his life in Hamilton Harbor. Police say the 35-year-old went for a swim this morning in Lake Ontario, dove in the water about 6 a.m., didn't come up. And, uh, of course, his body recovered uh, about eight hours later. Here is Inspector Marty Schulenberg saying foul play is not suspected. But at this point, I can say that we do not believe there to be any suspicious activity or foul play involved, and we do believe this to be a case of misadventure. All right. Uh, obviously, uh, police not releasing a lot of information until, of course, uh, investigations are done. Let's bring in Dr. Glenn Hanna, Assistant Program Head, Justice Studies, University of Guelph-Humber, uh, 32 years of experience with the RCMP and is with us now. Glenn, thank you for taking the time. We appreciate this. Oh, thanks for the invite, Scott. Uh, obviously, we can't come on, uh, comment on this case. There's, there's not that money, uh, much information available as of uh, this point, but... When uh, investigators arrive on scenes such as this, how do they process this? Where do they start? I, I think the number one thing is coming to grips with what is it that you're dealing with. And oftentimes, you know, uh, people say, you know, what are you, uh, you're writing a book or a cop when somebody is asking a lot of questions. And that's what police do. You ask questions, you ask questions, you ask questions. And whenever you're getting those, the answers from those questions, you're starting to sift them. Is there consistencies? Is there inconsistencies? What, are the, what is the potential for the situation that I'm looking at? Um, and then you start to gravitate uh, towards a particular area, keeping your, uh, your mind open that this absolutely may, may change. So the first thing is start asking those questions. And clearly, in a case like this, are you looking at a rescue or a recovery uh, and depending on the time, uh, it, it, it's a very, very short period of time before you're actually looking at recovery uh, as opposed to, to rescue. Uh, obviously, investigators, police, law enforcement uh, officials see this sort of thing a lot. That's their their job and, and, on, and the unfortunate side of it. Uh, how do they keep an open mind in the sense that, well, as you said, this has happened, this has happened, this, ha- this has happened, therefore it could be this. How do you keep open? Because we've seen situations, uh, certainly nothing to do with this case, but in others where all of a sudden uh, the investigation direction has changed uh, quickly with, with either different information or a fresh look at it. How do you, how do you, how do you keep from, from categorizing these? Well, uh, it's, uh, it's a risk the police take when they make uh, comments very quickly after an incident occurs. So everybody is asking, what is going on here? And the police uh, you know, have a duty to the public to give them some kind of information, but it's a risk early. Um, uh, and I think uh, the police here have couched it. You know, right now it doesn't look uh, suspicious. But exactly what you said, some other piece of information comes into the puzzle that doesn't fit. And you go, wait a minute. This is different. This isn't fitting the the direction that we thought we were going. Let's change. And we've seen that in some very, very high-profile uh, cases. You look at the Sherman uh, murder case uh, exactly, in Toronto, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, MacArthur uh, case in, uh, in, in Toronto, even the Novichok nerve agent cases uh, in, in the UK. What police officer, when they first went to that scene, when the first two were poisoned, thought this would be an attempt by the Russian government? to murder two spies. Hmm. But eventually that came out. Now, when the second two in that case uh, took ill, the first statements from the police were they thought they got into some bad street drugs. Yeah, That potentially 
was what the information that was initially coming to the forefront was saying to them. So they took a chance and they said that. Then you start to sift. You do that balance. Is there consistencies, inconsistencies? What next is the next piece of information? And being prepared to say, uh, okay, we have to change direction. And that happened in those second two people. They went from bad street drugs to uh, uh, what could be actually a major a major break in the, in that whole the whole case. So the same thing happens in every uh, sudden death uh, uh, investigation that that police are are involved in. You go in eyes wide open. What is the potential? But after a while, some of those is it possible start to look less and less and less likely, and other potentials look more and more likely. Till you get to the stage where you say there's nothing else. Um, uh, here uh, to look at. And then in, in a case like this, it would then become a coroner's case where the police are assisting the coroner's office who takes on uh, the investigation. You can see how uh, this sort sort of creates one sort of vicious circle when the, you know the police don't say much, then the, pe- the public are complaining, well, why didn't they say more? And then, of course, uh, complain again when the information is inaccurate or is premature. So really... <laughs> well, it's, it, you know what? Really, it is the nature of policing. Uh, Gilbert and Sullivan, in one of their songs, said, a policeman's lot is not always a happy one. And that's the truth. No matter what you do, somebody's going to be upset. Somebody else will be very happy. Um, and so this is a risk the police take when they make comments early on. But... The public has a right to know sure. w- what it is. Is there something we should be concerned about? Um, and couched the proper way, saying at this time, nothing looks uh, suspicious, is very, very uh, appropriate. Uh, things could turn on a dime. I'm not expecting. I have no inside information on this particular case. Right. Um, uh, but we saw that in the, uh, in, the, in the Sherman case. The exact opposite of that was the MacArthur case, where the police were highly suspicious for some time, right. and yet there was no evidence. And eventually they said, we've done all we can do, and things were shut down. This was in missing people. What In, in this situation with the Emery case, what would happen now? What are police doing now? I mean, obviously there's been a, a body recovered. What's the process now? So I think as they're probably still actively involved uh, in the uh, in the investigation, uh, uh, interviewing people, looking for uh, you know where it is. Is there uh, anybody close by? Uh, getting timelines. Is there any surveillance uh, video of uh, of uh, the harbor where where it occurred? Um, they'd be looking at uh, at backgrounds of, uh, of of people involved, and eventually, uh, and they will also be in contact with uh, with the coroner uh, uh, and. Eventually, the decision will be made. There is nothing criminal here. At that point, uh, if it gets to that, it gets turned over to the coroner, and the police then act as uh, as uh, assistant or aides to the coroner. Uh, we're hearing early reports of a case of misadventure. Uh, decode that. It basically means about an accident, a terrible accident. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, something that was unintentional. Um, uh, and, you know, these things can happen in, in the water. Um, drowning can happen uh, in seconds. Um, and, um, you know, the, 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 the original response, uh, you know, I was uh, watching the media coverage, you know, the, the very systematic uh, search, uh, you know, uh, for Mr. Emery. I mean, that is absolutely standard. You, you know, uh, in a situation like this, it's not a rescue effort. You know it's a recovery, and the only way to do that, especially in water that is not you know crystal clear, 
uh, is very, very uh, uh, methodological. You have to actually, you know, lay out grids. Um, I've been involved in some of these searches, not as a diver, but from the investigative side. Um, and it is a long, slow process to make sure the entire area is uh, is covered. So they've done that. They've recovered uh, Mr. Emery. And now it is going through all those investigative steps uh, so that eventually uh, the, the lead investigator can make the decision this was uh, a misadventure or something else. If it is misadventure, it goes to the coroner. Uh, anything we can learn from as citizens at this point? I guess, again, we still don't know any details at this point in regard to this specific accident, but someone who's in the business that you are in, um, uh, nothing uncommon here, is there? No. Uh, life is fragile. Uh and sometimes uh, things happen when we least uh, uh, expect it. Um, that's an unfortunate uh, reality. Um, I'm, I'm no longer in policing. I, I have a new career now, but, um, uh, and my, my children are grown up. But there isn't a time that I don't say goodbye to them or hello to them, but I don't give them a big hug because uh, you really do, as a first responder dealing with these issues, you really, uh, it really gets driven home to you. Life is precious. And, and it can be gone in a fleeting, uh, fleeting moment. Dr. Glenn Hanna has been with us, Assistant Program Head, Justice Studies, University of Guelph, Humber, 32 years experience with the RCMP. Glenn, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. Bye-bye. All right, let's bring in Joe Saputo, uh, who uh, knew uh, Ray Emery and, uh, of course, was a friend of his, car star, businessman in uh, the area. You certainly know of the Saputo name. Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Your thoughts on what has happened? Uh, God, devastated. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I can't believe, uh, you know, you guys called me and the spectator called me and CBS actually just called me and I'm uh, pretty honored. Uh, you know, I don't, didn't know Ray's uh, as well as I think a lot of my other friends did, but uh, we have been spending a lot of time together lately. We do a lot of golfing together and uh, uh, yeah, I'm devastated. I uh, can't believe it. Uh, I don't really know exactly what happened. Obviously, like you guys were just talking about, there's uh, still some questions to be answered. But uh, I got to be honest, it's a heavy heart, and uh, you know, I just uh, I, I I can't believe it. It's still not not real for me yet. When you know the victim like this, it must just really blindside you when you hear this information. Yeah, it it does. I mean, uh, yesterday it was it was really hard for me. I was uh, was over at my parents' house. We had some family over, and I found out, and uh, you know, I was pretty choked up. And uh, like I said, I didn't know him as well as a lot of other guys did. But yeah, it, it is. It, it's blindsiding. It's it's unbelievable. I was just with him. We just played golf. We just spoke. We just texted. And uh, and you know, you hear of these things happening, and uh, you don't know what to feel. You know, I just you know, God bless his, uh, his family. And like I said, his friends who know him better than I do, I can't, can't even imagine what they're going through. But for myself, yeah, it, it's blindsiding. It hurts. What can you tell us of him, of the limited time that you did have with him? Oh, geez. Guy was an absolute beauty. I mean, he was amazing in every way. Uh, uh, just for example, I mean, he came into my uh, collision center here in Ancaster a couple weeks ago for me to just do some minor, minor uh, touch-ups on a vehicle of his. And, uh, and I had asked him, I, I said, Razor, do you mind just bringing in a photo or something for my little guy? I have a two-year-old son. And, uh, and he says, yeah, no, yeah, no problem, buddy, no problem. So when he came in, he brought a whole handful of them. And uh, I brought him right back into the shop on the floor where the guys were. And, of course, my guys are, you know, they're, they're guys' guys, right? They, yeah. love, uh, they love sports. And, uh, you know, he asked him, every single one of them, what's your name? 
wrote them uh, wrote them uh, a nice little uh, something there on the on the on the picture of himself and gave each and every one of them individual ones and shared uh, a couple stories with them. I mean, uh, if you knew the guy, anybody who knows the guy, his, his smile is ridiculous. It's just contagious, you know. And I think he's most famous for the couple scraps he's been in there uh, where he's just smiling away. And you yeah. know what? Uh, uh, he's he's like that in real life. You know, he's he's pretty laid back, pretty. Uh, pretty good guy and like i say he's always smiling and he's just he's an, he was an incredible man like i said the small time the little time that i spent with him was just uh very precious unbelievable what was he like to golf with oh buddy that was <laughs> as smooth as silk i'm telling you he he didn't he didn't look like he was really going after the ball he was an aggressive ball striker but when he made contact I don't know if there was any any other guys I knew that hit the ball straighter than him, and he hit it long, not too long, but he hit it long, and his swing was just rhythmic. I mean, you didn't need to know who he was to know that the guy was an athlete. It was just natural. Uh, what's it like around the shop now, considering the the impact that he had on you and, and the workers there? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, uh, like I said, the guys were, you know, uh, they were blown away. I got a bunch of texts yesterday from some of my technicians uh, wishing me their condolences and. Yeah, it's very interesting you asked that question. It was kind of a, fu- a funny mood in here this morning, and uh, every morning we have a production meeting uh, to talk about the week and the day. And uh, at the end of the, uh, the the meeting, I had you know we we uh, we kind of just you know didn't say too much. Everybody knew what was going on, and uh, I lit a candle at the front reception desk with his photo that he signed for us. Mm. And, uh, uh, we're all just kind of sharing, you know. Smiling, right? Smiling about the, you know, him coming in a couple weeks ago and introducing himself and telling stories about, you know, some of the scraps that we remember on the ice and, you know, then then it hits home when we talk about how nice he was to us and, you know, how good of a guy he was. So, the mood around here today is is uh, it's in remembrance. And uh, like I said, although I didn't know him as well, I'm, you know, I've got my head trying to hold my head up today. But, uh, you know, like I said, I'm just thinking about his family and his friends who knew him better and just, you know, wishing them all the best. Joe Saputo has been with us, uh, car star and caster, talking about his experience uh, with Ray Emery and uh, what it meant to him to uh, get to know him. Joe, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks, guys. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Before that, here is a clip of Trump talking before going into the summit uh, of what he hopes to accomplish. I think we will end up having an extraordinary relationship, I hope so. I've been saying, and I'm sure you've heard over the years, and as I campaign, that getting along with Russia is a good thing, not a bad thing. All right, National Security Advisor John Bolton, ABC's This Week, uh, says he doesn't understand how Putin could not have known about Russia attempts to meddle in the election. I find it uh, hard to believe, but uh, that's what one of the purposes of this meeting is, so the president can uh, see eye to eye with President Putin and ask him about it. What I find fascinating in all of this is just before this visit happened, um, 12 Russian military officials were indicted for trying to hack into the Democrat uh, Party's uh, servers and influence elections. When asked by a reporter if he was going to bring this up with Putin, he said he never really thought about it. (laughs) Really? Really? Why wouldn't you, considering it's your staff that's charging these people? And where does that kind of statement get you? Is there a purpose for that that serves America? What are Americans getting out of that statement? 
How is this serving America? Lots of speculation on how it can be serving Donald Trump, but how is it serving America? Uh, Again, let's bring in Elliot Tepper, uh, professor of political science, Carleton University. He is with us now. Elliot, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, good afternoon, Scott. I find it fascinating that when asked about the 12 being charged, he said he never really thought about asking Putin about it. I think it was more specific than that. The question, as I heard it, was, are you going to ask him to extradite these people right. now that they, a grand jury has indicted them? Will they be sent out of uh, Russia for, by extradition, because there's no extradition treaty yep. between the two countries, uh, to face the grand jury charges? And that's what he answered. Uh, no, I hadn't really thought about extradition. Uh, thank you for the correction. Does that change things a whole lot? It does on that specific issue. Mm-hmm. It, the big question all along has been, what is it between Trump and Putin and between uh, Trump and, and his attitude toward Russia compared to all other countries and all other leaders? And that's what this summit was uh, meant to, uh, to uh, underline. Let's, uh, let's take the high road here for the moment and also talk about politics because the question about what came out of all this summit I mean, there's in a lot of press commentary already, and I'll be glad to join in on it. But let's take the high road for the moment, but also link it to politics. What did come out of this? If you take the internally consistent view of Donald Trump, not of his advisors, although we don't know about Bannon as an unofficial advisor, but his view, I think, is a radical, revisionist view of how the world works. He's made it very clear that he doesn't have much uh, time of day for traditional law alliances. The whole framework of wor- uh, international politics since the Second World War, which has brought peace and prosperity to America, about, uh, among other countries, about you know, all the rest of us. This is not his view of how the world works. It's increasingly clear. He's got a radically different view. And that view is, well, you know, there's spheres of influence and... Um, strong men in charge of spheres of influence work fine by him. Each state for itself, America being such a large player, we will do just fine on a bilateral basis with the whole world. He just doesn't accept the consensus of both the Republicans and the Democrats over 70 years about how the world works, although there's a, you know back and forth of center-right, center-left. But let's link this now to why is he talking this way? Why, apart from not seeing the world that way, you know, the, the trade wars and so forth all fit into a worldview mm. that's quite different. Everything, is, I believe you and I have talked about this, to try to understand American politics now, it really helps to say, how does this affect the November elections? This is all a big struggle for power in America. When you see what seems to be inexplicable things, he is building a coherent message to the people who elected him, to re-elect him, and most importantly, to hold the House and the Senate in the midterm elections. This message that uh, out of the summit, you know, I've stood up to everybody. I've stood up to the Republicans, to the Democrats, to my own advisors. We are going to have a good relationship with, uh, with Russia, and we're going to solve the world's problems, and I'm a great negotiator, and that's how things ought to be. Why don't you... Be- this message will play well with his base. Yeah. Watch the polls, I believe, for him over the next week or so. I predict they'll go up. 
I understand everything that you're saying, and 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 Elliot. Uh, I, well, it's it's worked in the past. That being said, where's the tipping point here? Uh, and we were talking about this earlier with another guest. You know, you act like this in America, it's one thing. You go onto a world stage and act like this, it's a different story. People don't respect you the same way. America has always been number one. It's always been respected in the world. At what point do the American people, including the base, say, you know what? This guy, he's not representing the majority of us. You can go out and kick around, you know, the cans of the world leaders all you want. But at what point does a picture of the queen standing there looking at, his, at her watch going, where the hell is this guy? Or the fact that he's insulting uh, past traditional allies, who a lot of Americans may be coming from these countries originally. Uh, at what point do they say, well, you know what? This something's not right here. People have been looking for a tipping point for Donald Trump since he first announced that he might consider thinking about running for president. Yeah, good point. And we've been, everybody's been predicting over and over again, that tipping point has now been reached. Surely, after this, there's no way he's going to succeed. Yeah, this one will sink him. <laughs> and so far it hasn't. He's yeah. got 90% support of the Republicans. His, his um, polling among evangelicals, which was already very high, has increased in recent times. This is after the Stormy Daniels and, you know, he's cheating on his wife and we've got the proof. All of that, the support base that he wants and that he's seeking and that he can say, he can tell them this is how things work and they say, oh, okay, this is how it works? Yeah. It's working for him. Yeah. No, no, no two ways about it. But is there a point where they will hold him to account and say, is America great again? Or is America arrogant again? November 3rd will tell us that. Yeah. The, right now, he has a strategy which is effective for him, and in doing so, he also has, to go back to the summit, he has a radically different view of, and again, I'm staying on the high road here, mm-hmm. he has an internally consistent view of how the world ought to work, and that he's going to go by those rules, not by the rules of the last 70 years the western consensus and japan is part of that consensus too so this is working for him so far now let's talk about the summit if you'd like the summit itself what i was looking for because we know about the optics we know that as he says donald trump said you're not going to get a perry mason moment here where where putin says oh yeah i've been you know influencing your election keep in mind that that influencing of the election really benefited Donald Trump. Yeah. Whether it's collusion or not, mm-hmm. that's the bottom line. That's the nut effect. So you're not going to get uh, Putin saying, yeah, yeah, we engaged in an active measures campaign. And but how can he really not acknowledge the 12 Russians that are charged in this? Well, you know. I mean, how can Trump ignore, you know, acknowledging this? I mean, there were some people that said you shouldn't even be going on this thing. Yes, I know. And the Democrats uh, had, a, not only Democrats, primarily said don't even bother going. The entire... Um, national security infrastructure of America, in a sense, is aligned on one side, saying America's been attacked, America's democracy is, is in question as a result of this, but none of that matters to the beneficiary who's in charge of American foreign policy. That's Donald Trump. Is Donald Trump, can this in any way be good for America? Is he pointing something out we're all missing? Well, if you believe that the, the 
post-70-year-old 70, 70 consensus mm. has had its day that really the old-fashioned way of doing power politics is the wave of the future. I've been saying it isn't back to the future. Back is the future. So we're talking about the emergence of great power politics that led to World War One, and the Gilded Age, and then the, the uh, so if it's, if all of that that led to the Second World War. If that kind of politics may be indeed coming back, we see populism rising all across Europe. Remember, so that there does that kind of, of does that kind of, of politics come back without another war? Well, it didn't end well, did it? No. Uh, either the First World War or the Second World War. The reason we have the kind of world order we presently see was to see to it that that never happened again, and it is being ignored, if not dismantled, by the current administration. Is this the wave of the future? Uh, is he on to something? Is this really, he just sniffed something that was coming that the rest of us didn't see? I guess time will tell on that. But for those of us who believe, as I do, that the kind of international order we've had, rules-based and uh, conflict-avoiding to some degree, and methods of doing conflict avoidance matter, yes, I, I, I'm, I have some trepidation that uh, you know the world we're heading toward might not be uh, the world that we would like, but it might be we are headed toward it. Uh, what's next? I mean, we saw the, the, the North Korean summit, the Kim Jong-un thing, sign comes out with a big pen and signs it and we're all safe again. What's a win here with Putin? And what follows that? And could, could we be looking at exactly what the future holds? In other words, a lot of real nothing, but just a lot of photo ops and chatter. What I'm looking for out of this summit and what I look for out of the previous summit with the North Koreans is one thing, stepping back from the nuclear abyss. If we can do anything out of these summits and out of all the uh, photo op circus-like atmosphere around them, if we can move toward a safer world in terms of, and, and I'd like to pinpoint it on this summit, a safer world because the powers that have the weapons have some method of, of putting a cap on them, stepping back from that. Uh, what Putin opened up with today in his, in his statement was, we, the very first thing he said is, we are going to make progress on, uh, there's some various initials, and, uh, on the various programs that have been put in place to make the world safer on nukes, and also about not weaponizing outer space. If out of this entire summit, the work, there are supposed to be working committees uh, set up, Scott's, to follow this up. If those working committees are put in place, if START is extended, if the other agreements are, are uh, examined, if there's going to be a nuclear de-escalation, de a cyber war from space de-escalization, well, all of this is worth it. How much will we know about what was said in that meeting? And is this about smoke and mirrors? We'll never know if something crafty was going on or if there was a lot of nothing going on because nobody was there. And, and that's part of the Donald Trump show. It's what's under this shell. It's, yes, it's what's, what's under this shell, what's under that shell, mix them all up, which one's where. You know, I mean, Donald Trump thrives on confusion and divisiveness. So will we ever really know what was said in that meeting? He said, the reason I do not want my own advisors in the room is that I do not want leaks, 
and I don't want them to interfere with my conversation, interrupt my That should make us all feel safer. That does not make anybody feel safer, <laughs> unless you take, as I suggested, the high road here, that he does have a grand vision of a different kind of a world, a world which uh, is, is coming into focus, and that that world is uh, one that we'd all better uh, learn about and get used to. Do you think there's really an end game here for this, or do you think the end game is just anything but the status quo? The end game is November <laughs> the election. Yeah, yeah. The end game is to, is to hold power and stave off the possibility of impeachment. He's not going to, Donald Trump is never going to say, the Russians really did something terrible because that something terrible ended up with him getting elected. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of commentary, uh, kinds of things I read, saying, well, you know, we have elections coming. What measures have been put in place to see to it the Russians don't do it again? And the uh, head of intelligence in America just said, hey, red lights are flashing, just like they did uh, before 9-11. The Russians are now continuing to do what they did at the last uh, election. There's so now if we have proof of it twice, does that make any difference? Well, you have to wonder why the Trump administration isn't bearing down, not on the past, but on the future. That is, okay, we don't want to really talk about what happened that got himself elected, but, uh, you know, we have to protect the democratic process. Protecting that process does not seem to be his number one priority. Many predict that uh, the midterms will not be in his favor. Could we have that as wrong as everything else prior to this? Uh, and could this sol- uh, solidify his popularity? Indeed. This is one of the things I've been trying to suggest for quite some time. Uh, do not start to make policy planning based on the assumption that the Democrats are going to take the House of Representatives and maybe even the Senate. It could happen. There could be a blue wave. But if you take a look right now at the polling, uh, everything visible to us out of the primary so far, there might not be that blue wave. The House may even remain in Republican hands, which would be a big anomaly in terms of all previous elections where, you know, the midterm after the previous election, the other party gained seats in the House, quite a few seats. Uh, That may not happen this time. It's entirely possible that the House will remain in Republican hands, the Senate even more firmly in Republican hands. The Supreme Court, of course, is going to be a factor in all of this, and it's going to increasingly rule in beha- uh, on behalf of those uh, interests which favor the Republican Party, uh, out of their own conviction, let's say. But uh, elections are the only answer we have right now, mm. and we aren't sure how those are going to go. We remember all the hoopla prior to the Singapore summit, uh, Singapore summit with uh, North Korea, and now it's, it's barely even a blip on the radar, uh, I guess, other than the verification we're trying to see if this is even happening or not. Will we be even talking about this Putin summit next week? Washington, D.C. is a generator of the circus. Uh, there will be new things that we will be forced to talk about, even if we think they're not the most relevant things on Earth. The one thing we've learned after a year and a half or so is that the Donald Trump presidency will continue to give us things to talk about so that today's news look like, you know, last month's, last year's news. We should not let this point in Russian-American relations pass into history as just another photo op and another op- photo uh, opportunity that, that could have led to something. I think there are missed opportunities here, but it's also another inflection point perhaps, showing that 
all the states of Europe, the traditional alliance thinking, that's on trade as well as uh, security, is being rethought by Canada and by others because America is no longer reliable as the kind of sustainer of that order that it has been for the 70 years since it was put in place. Confusing times. Elliot Tepper has been with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Elliot, as uh, always, a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time and expertise. Always a pleasure, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday's win, France takes the World Cup. Uh, But how did Russia do as host? What about the politics? What about all the underlying issues uh, that seem to uh, rear their head when a world event like this takes place? To talk more about all of this, John Hoberman is with us, professor, University of Texas, author of Sport and Political Ideology, and he is with us now. John, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Glad to be here. So how did Russia do as host? Was this a win for Vladimir Putin? I think it's a little early to say. According to Mr. Putin, it is a huge success because, according to him, uh, the World Cup has destroyed myths and prejudices that have darkened Russia's image, and now he claims it's over. That being said, how does that thought move from his lips to reality? Well, there is a long record of all the big dictatorships have used major sports events for propaganda and national prestige purposes. This started uh, with Adolf Hitler, the 1936 Berlin Olympic Games. It was a big uh, prestige win for him. And uh, major dictators uh, such as uh, Brezhnev in 1980, the Moscow Olympics, this was supposed to uh, promote the prestige of the Soviet Union, uh, the Chinese in 2008 with the Beijing Olympic Games. Putin has a real interest in in mega events and tying uh, the idea of Russian power to them. The Sochi uh, Winter Olympic Games of 2014 were very important to him because the Russian team had bombed uh, in Vancouver in 2010. They just took home a few medals. Putin was incensed uh, and he fired the head of the National Olympic Committee, and he determined that this sort of a Winter Olympics fiasco was never going to happen again. Uh, we know about the, uh, the doping program that helped rack up uh, so many medals for the Russians. And he spent $51 billion uh, on this, uh, earning the gratitude of Mr. Bach, the president of the International Olympic Committee, who was there just yesterday to participate in the award ceremony uh, with him. Uh, Bach is, in a way, as president of the IOC, he's sort of the IOC's answer to Donald Trump in the sense that Putin has him uh, in his pocket and has had him there for, for several years. So you ask the question, uh, where are the big uh, politics in relation to sports global mega events? They're all over. So what, were, was, were the politics evident at this tournament? Was this, was this tournament poli- uh, polit- uh, politics free in the sense that there was no major uh, situation? There was no major event. Nothing happened. It went off relatively smooth. Uh, uh, what about the politics in this tournament? 
Well, when you when you put a major sports festival uh, into a dictatorial society, which is what happened in 2014 with Sochi, which happened uh, just now with the World Cup, it all depends on what you what you call politics. Now, there are uh, human rights uh, are a political issue, and one of the the notorious aspects of the Sochi Games was that there were uh, all sorts of you know threats against uh, against gays, uh, you know laws against homosexuality, that that sort of thing. Dissent is is never welcome at a sports mega event uh, in a dictatorship that applied in Sochi. You point out that that this five or six weeks seems to have gone off without um, internal disruption. Uh, that is a win for the security services. In a way, it's a win uh, for Putin. Uh, some of us would say that it would be a higher quality society uh, if things weren't so under control. But from Putin's standpoint, that, of course, is the situation he wants. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, there's a lot of magical thinking about uh, winning and losing on the international sports stage. In 2010, for example, the Spanish, it was the Spaniards who won the World Cup. And there were predictions that this was going to boost their economy. Well, what actually happened was that the housing market collapsed. Uh, and so that you see the, the pictures of you know, ecstasy in the streets of Paris, et cetera. These, this, is, this is a very short-lived high. And as a matter of fact, if, you, if we want to talk about the French, uh, this will be heralded uh, in France and elsewhere as a, a win for uh, a multiracial team. Uh, that's the next well, point I was about to touch on. Go ahead. Yeah, well, uh, we've, we've seen this before. Uh, in 1998, uh, the great star uh, Zidane, whose parents were born in Algeria, was the big star when uh, the French won the 1998 World Cup. Uh, and people are saying, well, uh, this is a solution for the, uh, the racial problem in France. Well, it turned out that this was a fantasy. Thousands of cars burned on the outskirts of Paris back in 2005. These are fantasies. Then you get to 2010, and the French team is in South Africa. And there is a uh, basically a revolt of the black players against a white coach who was not considered terribly competent by anybody. This turned into a real uh, scandal. The entire French political class was trashing the black players uh, who were in revolt against uh, the arrangement down there. And it was really, it was really pretty disgraceful. So that in 1998, the, the French are having fantasies about multiracial success. In 2010, it's an absolute debacle. Now it's 2018, and the same fantasies about how uh, a soccer game is going to solve France's racial problems is going to be in circulation for as long as it lasts. So the fact that a, a large portion of this team was Muslim has n no bearing whatsoever then? They better be good athletes, or they shouldn't be there. Uh, whether now, of I'm course, guessing they'd have to be. The the the, the Muslim identity uh, is important in today's world, and uh, many of us are going to hope that the, the the presence of these people. I believe that 
the great star, at least at one point, uh, was a black player. One hopes that this is going to have an inspirational effect. As a matter of fact, in 2010, in South Africa, when the, the French team uh, was, was collapsing and, and was sent home, the, the German national coach at that time, his team was doing pretty well. He, he pleaded with the German politicians, who have their own race problem, of course. He said, look, use our multiracial national soccer team as an example for how to make uh, multi-ethnic peace in, in German civil society. These are very weighty issues, and it is not surprising that uh, people succumb to the kind of magical thinking that is going to wish an efficacy hmm. of, of sports uh, achievements uh, onto uh, an entire society and, and solve problems that are so intractable. Uh, obviously not in the long term anyway, perhaps for a small period of time, but not in the long run. Uh, what about the president, uh, President Trump's tweets on the tournament? Russia, uh, congratulating Russia for putting on a truly great World Cup tournament, one of the best ever, he tweeted. Well, one can only listen with astonishment to what is coming out of Donald Trump uh, in, in recent days. He is carrying out, uh, in a way that I don't think anyone would have imagined, uh, an embrace of Putin and the Russian dictatorship and the political values uh, of that system in a way that is, it is just, it's astonishing, it's appalling. Uh, he's trashing the European alliance. Uh, I, I think it makes sense to wonder out loud if if he is a Russian asset uh, in one way or another. He is certainly doing Putin's work for him. So this sort of congratulation on the ostensible success of the World Cup just fits Trump's program at this time. And it wasn't that other leaders didn't express the same thing, but usually their gratification was more directed towards the teams that played as opposed to the host, that uh, the Russian host. Right. If you're a politician on an occasion like this, you have to show goodwill, uh, you know, some good sportsmanship. If you didn't win, um, you're you're on the stage and, and there are performances to be put on by uh, political actors. Um, at this particular time, the uh, the amazing political uh, act belongs to Donald Trump. And obviously the tweet was uh, in support of his later visit, uh, later meeting with uh, Vladimir Putin, which was coming up after that. So that certainly would warm his heart, wouldn't it, before that meeting? Oh, sure. Uh, you know, this is good feeling of, of a certain kind that is politically useful. We know what uh, soccer fans can be like, uh, you know, especially if they win, hopefully if they don't lose. How did Russia control the rabbit soccer fan? Now, you know, Moscow, big city, under the lights of the world, uh, under the eyes of the world. But that being said, how did they keep all this under control, considering? Well, I don't have any detailed uh, knowledge of how they did that. Uh, it, is, it is known, of course, that there are entire squads of, of racist uh, Russian soccer fans who, well, they're, they're not the only racist soccer fans in the world, but, you know, you get enough of these people together, they take over a section of the stadium, uh, and they will scream obscenities and racist chants, etc. I don't know how they did it. I know that uh, the, the 
1980 Moscow Olympics were under extremely tight control, and that was the work of the KGB. I talked to a British reporter who was there. He said it was unbelievable. Uh, if, if you had a physical disability, apparently, you weren't even allowed to be on the street. They just sewed up Moscow as tight as a drum. And that was the work of the secret police. Uh, I would assume that the current Russian secret police uh, contributed something to this social peace. Uh, that being said, uh, the final didn't go without incident. Demonstrators running onto the field. How does that happen, and what will happen to them? Uh, I don't know. Who's, uh, whose citizens were they? I don't know. I understand that uh, it was part of a Russian pop band that had been in, uh, in problems or had been an issue with, with uh, government before, and you know they were obviously uh, corralled uh, as the game was going on. There was a quick shot to uh, Putin, uh, Putin, who was sitting in the stands and, and kind of smirking to someone else about it. Are, are you talking about the famous women, the Pussy yes, Riot group? Yes, absolutely, yes. I find it amazing that they were able to get into the stadium. I mean, these are people who have spent real time in prison. Yeah, I understand they worked for at opposing it. Putin, and here they are uh, taking yet another risk. I, I'm yeah. surprised they got in. Uh, that being said, as we look and, and digest all of this World Cup, what are we going to remember most about it? I don't... Uh, well, it will either either the the golden glow that Mr. Putin uh, has has proclaimed as you know the essence of this World Cup uh, is is going to continue, or uh, if the special counsel Mr. Mueller comes down with uh, a set of indictments that implicates. Americans in collusion with the, uh, the, the Russian spies, uh, I think that is going to cast a pall over the, uh, the U.S.-Russia relationship that is going to be a lot more powerful than uh, the afterglow of a sporting event. So hosting, uh, the World Cl- uh, hosting the World Cup and then Donald Trump, this is a, a pretty good time for Vladimir Putin, isn't it, short term? Uh, short term, it is. Uh, but uh, as Donald Trump always says, we'll see what happens. Will this change in any way as this moves uh, uh, next year and then eventually to North America? What will this tournament look like in North America? Uh, that's, that's an interesting question. Uh, one thing you have to appreciate about sports mega events, uh, and this very much includes the, the political dimension, uh, the political strategy that is invested in them, is that every single one of them is different. And the fact that, the, that you're moving to a very different sort of uh, society with different rules, different politics, uh, that, that is going to, to inevitably shape the nature of of that event. Now, by contrast, uh, it is possible that if there are problems with the... Well, the next one, of course, is is in Qatar, uh, which is its own sort of very bizarre Mm. uh, event. And we'll we'll see how how that one goes with temperatures at 120 degrees Fahrenheit. But 
the there there's always going to be uh, temptation to compare if uh, one World Cup is remembered as this one is is remembered as as orderly and people had a good time you know, in part due to the the police state conditions in which it was held whereas another one is is chaotic or disorganized uh, it is yes it is possible uh, to look back at a a dictator uh, produced sportive mega event and say well you know that that was really inspiring in a way they they really pulled it off which which hitler's people did by the way in 1936 it was a big success it might even have changed the course of history in a certain way so but these are questions that are going to have to be uh, answered in retrospect Considering where we are with this World Cup and the summit that happened uh, uh, right after it, it'll be interesting to see what the Russian-U.S. relation is when this touches down in North America, if it's still the same. Uh, well, the things aren't going to be the same. No, not uh, at all. As, as you know, the, the political and news cycle in the United States uh, has accelerated on a on a twenty four seven basis to the point where you you can hardly follow it, uh, and you know Trump's fate uh, is is tied up with this uh, this Department of Justice investigation, uh, which is going to prove to be more important than uh, either the so called summit. Uh, or the the World Cup uh, that Putin is so happy about. John Hoberman has been with us, professor, University of Texas, author of Sport and Political Ideology. Fascinating conversation. John, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.